before you all in the presence of our God, um, the true, holy, living God, um, the one that is awesome, that is indescribable, um, that is great, that no other God can compare to. Um, I am humbled by this opportunity, um, and my prayer has been throughout this week that God will completely decrease me and that you guys see all of him, that he is the only person that you see as I read and preach his word and proclaim it before you today. Um, I'm grateful um, for Alice giving me this opportunity, for my Alabama family for coming, Marcel and Renee, um, Jenica and Tommy. Um, they know how to fight, so if, if you guys want to talk about me in my sermon, you might want to wait till you get to the parking lot before you start talking about me too loud, all right? So... Uh, um, as always, though, I want to keep a balance in my sermon. As I preach God's word, my Old Testament uh, seminary teacher said, it's hard to talk about God without um, committing some type of heresy because it, he's just, he's incredible. We can't find the words to describe him. And so as I try to preach his word and describe him, just know that I'm only hitting the tip of the iceberg, that God is much bigger. God is much greater than I can imagine and can tell you all. Um, so with that being said, I will try to display that God is love, that God is gracious, that God is merciful. But at the same time, you must understand that the same way he is perfectly loving and perfectly gracious and perfectly merciful, that he at the same time, he is a just God and he is a jealous God. And that one day he will pour his wrath out on everyone that is not found in his son. So with that being said, um, I'm about finished. Let's go to prayer. Lord, we thank you so much. Um, for this opportunity. I pray that I completely decrease and you increase. I pray that you will open our hearts, our ears, and our mind to receive your word. I pray, Lord, that you will send your angels to give us clarification of your word, to give us understanding of your word. Father, I pray that you will touch our hearts and souls, that you will either lead us to repentance, Lord, or lead us to Christ, Lord, that we may live for him. Give us a heart that says that, Lord, for God I will live and for God I will die. Amen. All right. Uh, in middle school, this is really weird. Um, in middle school, I used to play this game. I do not recall playing the element. We used to play this game called King of the Hill. And for some of you may know it, some of you may not. Um, Alex was excited when um, he started giving me stuff to tell you all about it. I said, Alex, this is my sermon. I'm not listening to anything you had to say. <laughs> is this recording right now? <laughs> all right, so... Uh, but anyway, the game uh, in middle school, they always had a pile of something, whether it was rocks, dirt, sand. It was always a pile of something. And what we would do is we would run to the top of that pile, and we would pretty much just yell, I'm king of the world, I'm king of the whatever, usually the king of that hill. And the game was everyone that wanted to play had to try to run up that hill and push you off the hill. That was it. It was just a bunch of, a bunch of boys that don't, didn't mind getting a broken bone, bloody nose, <laughs> That was it. There was no rules to the game. There was no, if you can stand up there for 20 seconds, you win. It was nothing. You had to keep fighting until either you lose or until the uh, recess bell rung. And so the game was constantly somebody pushing somebody else off, getting to the top of the hill, and trying to fight everybody else off. And uh, there was, like I said, there was no rules and there was no winner. That was just the game we played as a kid. And as I was thinking about that game, I would like to say that we only played that game as a, as a child. That's what I would like to say. But the sad truth is, all of us, most of us definitely, but I'm pretty sure all of us are still playing that game. That game where we're constantly trying to be on top. Or we're constantly trying to be the best at something. 
And we see this all the time, whether it's, am I the favorite child? Or, and do you like me more than anybody else? Uh, do I make more money than somebody else? Am I the, am, do I make more money? Am I the boss? Uh, and we constantly see this, am I the greatest athlete? Especially during the time of the Olympics, that, that there's no clear winner. That yes, they get gold, but as soon as they touch that wall, or as soon as they get that gold medal, the competition starts right back over. And they have to fight to uh, retain that, that reign as king or as the best all over again. And so that's the game we're constantly playing. And so when we read Psalm 2, we have to read ourselves into that psalm. That's the reason I told the story that when you look at Psalm 2, we can't be quick to judge the nations, the peoples, the, the, counsel, the kings that take counsel against God. We can't be quick to judge them because we too are still playing that game. We're constantly trying to be on top. And I believe that, that we're constantly trying to get on top because we constantly forget that God already holds that position. So as we look at Psalm 2, I'm going to break it down to four sections that pretty much everybody has ever dissected this psalm, broken into. Um, the first portion is the first three verses. We see a rebellious people. Uh, verses 4 through 6, we see a confident God that is sovereign. Uh, verses 7 through 9, we see God's decree. We hear of God's decree. And verses 10 to 12, uh, we see the anointed one's rule on earth. Now, as we should do any uh, text in the Bible, we got to read it into its own context, into where it's at at this moment. Uh, this will be considered a royal psalm, a coronation psalm, one that will be read or, 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 or spoken of as a king was being crowned king off of David's crown, uh, throne. Uh, it, it is to reflect the Davidic covenant that we see in 2 Samuel chapter 7. And so as we read certain things, we, we were reminded of 2 Samuel Chapter 7, the covenant God made with David. Um, but if nothing else, this psalm, when it's read by the people, it gives them hope that there will be a time that their an enemies are crushed, their enemies are smashed, and there will be a time that they have peace and that God's uh, king reigns over the world. So uh, as I, after I broke that down, I won't be long as we look through this uh, passage, um, but we have to take consideration that this passage will ultimately point us to Christ. Um, we're going to look at it as context. We would like to look at it as ourselves as we see that this passage ultimately points to Christ. So the first three verses he, the, are the questions, why? Why do the nations rage? And that why is implied for the, next, the first two verses completely. Why do the nations rage? Why do the peoples plot in vain? Why do the kings of the earth set themselves? Why do the rulers take counsel? Now, as reading this, the psalmist does not seem surprised nor worried about such foolish behaviors, but he displays confidence that the rebellion will not succeed because immediately in the first verse, he says their plot is in vain. And so he, he, he quickly questions, why are they doing this? If it's not going to work, why even bother to do such foolish acts? They rebel against, they rebel against the Lord and his anointed. Now, his anointed, remember, at this moment, we're not talking about Christ. Any king that's on the David throne would have to be first anointed king. And so that's who he's rebelling against. He's rebelling against the Lord and his anointed. But verse 3 uses the word there. It says, let us burst their bonds, cast away their cords. It reveals that there is a connection between the king and the Lord. That if you oppose one, then you oppose the other. And the question is, you as the anointed, you as God's anointed, you as God's chosen people, if someone is against God, 
Are they against you? Does your lifestyle reflect that if someone is against God, if they oppose God, if they offend God, does it offend you? And we see that, that here the king is in God's will. And when they oppose God, they oppose him. And when they oppose him, they oppose God. Uh, Shaolin, a Christian rapper, uh, or Christian writer, um, a Christian, he looked at this particular passage. And uh, to paraphrase what he said, he compared this attempt as a kid with a water gun trying to take over the entire country of Spain. That's what he compared it to. Why are they even bothering to do such acts? How does God respond to this? God laughs. He, he, he laughs. Martin Luther once said that if you can't laugh in heaven, then I don't want to be there. And I, I completely agree and I understand where he's coming from. But this is not the time to laugh. God's throne, his authority, his king, his power has just been challenged. And God laughs. Luther later on says that if he was in a similar situation, that if he did everything that God did and the people rebelled against him, he said, if I were God, I would kick this world into pieces. And after reading it, I said, well, thank God Luther isn't God. And we can also say the same thing about ourselves. Thank God we're not God. Because we are impatient. We are easily angry. We, we love to throw the punch back after someone hits us. And that's, but that's not how God displays himself here. God displays himself as a patient God that gives them opportunity to repent. But we are not that way. We can't be God. We can't drive up the street without getting ready to cuss people out and they cut me off and all this stuff. So how can we be God? And so we, all, we, we see here, we see that God's authority is challenged, but he laughs. He holds them in derision. He mocks their puny attacks or their puny plans. Now, God is not laughing at sin. He is not laughing, oh, look how cute they are while they're messing up and they're sinning against me. That's not what he is doing. Sin is not funny to God. We must understand that when we read this passage. He laughs because he knows the outcome of their schemes. And that's good to know that we serve a God that is mighty. If we serve a God that is awesome, that is confident, that is incredible, to the point that when challenged by opposition, his words alone terrifies them. That his words alone give life. And his words alone can destroy. A whisper can calm a storm. He speaks and things happen. That when he says, let there be light, it doesn't matter how much darkness in the area, light has to come forth because God's word is powerful. He handles the rebellion of the nation by simply declaring, I have set my king on Zion. The very thing the enemy tries to stop, God has already finished. And we can see that in our own life that when God proclaim something for you, when he says you will live, when he says that you will be successful, when he says you will make it through this, the enemy can do whatever he wants to. He can, he can throw whatever he wants to. He can put whatever he wants to in front of you. But if God has already said it, it has already happened. Don McClurkin once said, you would think by now they would have figured it out. The Lord will always see you through. God says, my king, I have set my king on my hill. It belongs to God. We belong to God. But for some reason, we constantly think that we have a say-so in how it should be handled because we think it does not belong to God. We think it belongs to us. But God has shown that he is, he is sovereign and he controls it all. Uh, as we look at the, the 7 through 9 verses, it reflects Second Samuel chapter 7. Uh, he will be my son. And I will be his father is what David, what God told David as he's made his covenant with his people. We see privileges as we continue to read this from being the king and being God's son. 
And this, this privilege, this, this power that we see when it says that, ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage, heritage and the ends of your earth your possessions. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. This is not a reflection of the king's power. This king is nothing but a man and he will eventually die. This is a reflection of God's power. This is a reflection that because God is in control, because God has anointed him, he is able to do these things. So as we look at it, we, we look at the reflection of God's power and we see how God gives his power and he empowers the king. And whoever this anointed one is, compared to uh, with God, the power God gives him, all of the opposition is feeble and frail. When we look at it, they, it says that they will be crushed like jars of clay. That whoever the anointed is, he can be confident in what God has told him and what God has anointed him with. Spurgeon looked at this passage and he said simply, God's anointed is appointed and shall not be disappointed. This king can rest assured that compared to his empowerment by God, all of the opposition is fragile. But what does it say about God? What do we see as we look through this passage and we, we've seen the different things that we, we've seen the different actions that's going on? What does it say about God? Well, first, God remains patient in this time of rebellion. He is patient. He has not kicked the world to pieces like he could have. He has given them the opportunity to repent. Uh, what else does it say? It, so, it shows that God is gracious. Not only does he give them time to repent, but he warns them of the, what will happen if they do not repent. His patience shows that he is in control throughout this whole song. He calls the kings to repent for their wicked plans. Serve the Lord with fear is what he says. Fearing God is not an act of emotions, but one of wisdom. If they are wise, they will admit their foolishness and respond to the Lord in the way he commands. Kiss the sun. Instead of trying to elevate to a spot that is already occupied by God, they are advised to wisely humble themselves. They cannot submit to God, though, without submitting to his king or his son, and vice versa. They cannot submit to the son without submitting to God. So what does it say for us? What does it look like for us today? Well, the same goes for us, that in the New Testament we understand and it is revealed to us that Christ is the fulfillment of that great king on David's throne, that he is the fulfillment of the Old Testament, and even this psalm, second psalm, he is the fulfillment of it. That he fulfilled it because he was the anointed one that later translates in the New Testament as Messiah. That he is God's son. That he is that king that, that was sitting on that holy hill. That he is the, the fulfillment of this. All this happened when he went to the cross. That they almost got it right. That they, they, they gave him a crown, but he, it wasn't supposed to be the crown of thorns. That they did clothe him, but it wasn't supposed to be a clothing for mockery. That they did elevate him to a higher position, but it was not supposed to be on the cross. They almost got it right. But because he faced the cross and because he died and because he raised from the dead with all power, he rose up and he declared in Matthew 28 that all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. He destroyed his enemies when he died on the cross and resurrected from the grave. And we, just like the the nations and the peoples here, are called to submit to him. The one true king because of our rebellion, because of our sin, we are called to repent lest you perish in the way. You are called to serve the Lord and repent. John Piper asked a question in his sermon, The Greatest Thing in the World. He asked the question, well, what is sin? Because we don't understand our rebellion. We don't understand our sin. We don't see a need to repent unless we understand what sin is. 
We, we won't see a need to kiss the son and to ask God to forgive us if we don't understand what sin is. Sin is the glory of God not honored, the holiness of God not reverenced, the greatness of God not admired, the power of God not praised, the truth of God not sought, the wisdom of God not esteemed, the beauty of God not treasured, the goodness of God not savored, the faithfulness of God not trusted, the promises of God not relied upon, the commandments of God not obeyed, the justice of God not respected, the wrath of God not feared, the grace of God not cherished, the presence of God not prized, and the person of God not loved. Anytime we want to be independent from the Father, that is sin, and we are called to repent. So the question is, do you see a need to repent then? <laughs> Show Baraka, uh, he, he said that we oftentimes exaggerate our strengths, and we hide our weaknesses. He said, but that only makes God's grace cheap. And so with that being said, I will close with a quote. I quoted Martin Luther. I didn't want to get in trouble, so I'm going to end with John Calvin. Uh, <laughs> it says, for there is no one so great or mighty that he can avoid the misery that will rise up against him when he resists and strives against God. Amen.